0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about disasters and horror stories and genocide and Syria and lots of things like that. And sometimes I, I think that we're suffering from like selection bias uh, and not talking enough about countries where those things aren't happening or haven't happened anytime recently. So today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. I've got uh, uh, two two folks here, uh, one of whom is a former college roommate of mine, uh, which makes him especially qualified. Uh, they're both very qualified people um, who uh, study Namibia for a living, and I think Namibia is a really interesting case study of like a country that had a lot of ingredients for disaster happening, and disaster did not happen. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Mark Gardner and Stephanie Quinn, who are both PhD candidates at Stanford University and uh, study Namibia for a living. Uh, Mark and Steph, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It's nice to be here.
0: So a lot of people don't know about Namibia very much. It's not really in the news, in part because the like, genocides and war crimes don't happen there it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a chill country mm-hmm. and yeah. so it's not it's not in the news and so like like in the onion uh when the onion did their world uh, atlas i think the entire entry about namibia was just about brad pitt and angelina jolie <laughs> <laughs> yeah you uh, can imagine That's,
1: yeah when I first went there, that's when that I was there when they arrived in like two thousand six and that's how I'd explain Namibia to people afterwards.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now more recently it's it's the site where uh, Mad Max Fury Road was, was filmed and and trampled over, I believe, some pretty pristine environmental uh That's reserves. right, yeah,
1: yeah. They they were not properly permitted to be where they were. Um and it was a minor minor scandal. Yeah. Um. (laughs) so
0: those those tire tracks apparently from that giant that that giant truck that they're driving through the whole movie and all the other trucks that are chasing it through the whole movie apparently those take like a hundred years to go away yeah those
1: could easily last uh last 100 years
0: (laughs) um (laughs) it was a really good movie that's
1: true that's true arguably worth it (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: but um but yeah so um i wanted to sort of talk a little bit about sort of like the history of of namibia and what you both research about namibia and and sort of why it's how namibia um how namibia works and why it's 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 been relatively successful in its its post-colonial history so uh for those who are uh, who don't know necessarily what namibia looks like it's in the it's, it's located in Southwest Africa in fact it was called German Southwest Africa when mm-hmm. the Germans were colonizing it and uh, since you're probably listening to this on a computer or a mobile device you can go to that and and google what the the country looks like and I think the the physical geography of Namibia just the, the the borders just show a lot about its history and and what it's all about the first thing you'll notice when you look at it is that it has this sort of weird panhandle thing that sort of juts into the the heart of um The heart of Central Central South Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I believe we have the Germans to thank for this.
2: Uh, Yes, we do. Um, I believe that the reason for the creation of what used to be uh, the Caprivi region and what is now called Zambezi region is that the Germans wanted access to the Zambezi River. Um, But it turned out that the Zambezi River is is not really very navigable by water uh, because of lots of rapids and, you know, falls like Victoria Falls. So I, I'm not sure it ended up doing them very much good in the end. But it did play an important role in uh, the Namibian liberation struggle and the mm. South African army made use of it.
1: And I've heard that they they had grand plans to build a railway to Tanzania, which was theirs at the time as well. But,
2: right, yeah.
1: But Cecil Rhodes put a stop to that.
0: The, the, the whole idea of this, this strip basically being part of a colonial swap with Britain in order to build an infrastructure project that never happened and was basically impossible from the beginning just kind of sums up colonial rule in, in general, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, fair. The, the other thing is that it's named, I mean, it, it's now the Zimbabwe region, but it was, a, Caprivi was the, the, the premier of, uh, of Germany from 1890 to 94. And it's named after this guy. If you, if you look him up, he just looks like, he looks like central casting, uh, what you would expect a late 19th century German, Baron von Caprivi. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, to look like. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah,
1: he's got mustache for days, I think is how they would say it <laughs> these days. It's
0: really, it's really amazing. You should look up a picture of Leo von Capri- Caprivi. Um, he... Um, uh, <laughs> Do you know that the the Italian word for mustache is is baffi and and it's oh. with an i on the end and uh-huh. in Italian i means plural so it's it's actually you know un uno baffo due baffi it's actually a pluralized <laughs> thing and Leo Van Caprivi's mustache is like it's two th- distinct units. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's parted
2: <laughs> down the center. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's it's. Imp- I can't do that. It's it's impressive, <laughs> Mark. You can kind of do that. You're growing oh, quite a, quite a handsome <laughs> bit of facial hair here, which no, none of our <laughs> listeners can see. But just trust me on this. It's um, beautiful. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I th- I'd like to do sort of like a drunken history, except <laughs> with just water, because it's like noon and I'm not ready to. To start on the Scotch yet, for one, <laughs> um, it's just sort of brief run through how we got, you know, how Namibia got to be where it is today. It started off the 20th century as a, as a German colony, mm-hmm. and uh, was on the re- and its Herero people were on the receiving end of uh, what is some people call the first genocide of the 21st century, and the Germans were just generally not very good as colonizers. And after they lost the war in world war one, they, this was, it was forked over and became a mandate for South Africa. Um, Steph, you study sort of the culture and history uh, a bit and right. um, not just a bit. You actually, that's just what you do. <laughs> 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 so, um, so uh, how would you say that, I guess, how would you say that being colonized by South Africa was the same or different than being colonized by say like a European power
2: in a lot of ways it was similar, although I would say that it was kind of a unique situation in that it's, I guess, the only African country that was colonized by a fellow country in on the African continent. I mean, there was kind of the language of trusteeship and uh, mandates that sort of changed the way that people talked about uh, South African obligation uh, and responsibility in Namibia. Uh, and I think that that had long-lasting effects, uh, but in a lot of ways, I, I I think it is actually pretty pretty feasible to think about uh, South Africa's presence in Namibia as colonization. Although it's it's interesting because it was colonization kind of layered over apartheid.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: And it had and it meant that the UN was much more involved in the decolonization discussion because they were there under I guess first league mandate and then yeah UN mandate and that meant the UN became a big part of how the uh, anti-colonial liberation struggle was was sort of played out
0: Namibia's decolonization came much later than almost any other country I think it might have been the last country on the African continent um, uh, it got independence in 1990 after an extended liberation war from 66 to 89. And uh, in this sense, it was sort of, I mean, you had basically 30 years of of effort to, uh, to get independence, which I I feel, I mean, one of the things that you see with a lot of European colonies is that at the end of world war two, the empires collapsed and, decolonization happened so quickly that there that there was basically no, I mean, the Europeans just left, and they they hadn't really trained the the, the local populations to to govern. And, and a lot of the bureaucracy leaves, a lot of the infrastructure leaves, the Europeans just sort of pack up and go and sometimes literally take the light bulbs with them. And uh, it, how, how would you say that the transition into maybe because I feel I don't know, like, maybe it just looks like this way in hindsight. But most african countries got independence in the 50s and 60s often a lot sooner than people thought that they were going to get independence mm-hmm. whereas even though it took a long time for the apartheid government to collapse and for south africa to relinquish tr- control of namibia it just seemed like the writing was on the wall and and we sort of <laughs> knew this was coming we being you know human beings the international community if you will mm-hmm. uh and so there was sort of time to prepare does that does is that, does, is that an accurate appraisal
2: uh yeah I mean, I I think there was time to prepare, and I think there were concerted efforts to do so. Uh, A good example might be the United Nations Institute for Namibia, which was established in uh, Lusaka, Zambia in, I believe, the early to mid-1970s. And the idea was that it would uh, educate and prepare Namibians to serve as uh, civil servants in independent Namibia.
1: And these were Namibians in exile as part of the, the struggle.
2: Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these these were Namibians who, who left.
1: But there was also internally, I, I so Steph is a historian. I'm an anthropologist. I mostly don't deal with uh, anything but the immediate past. But I remember talking to uh, someone who'd been high up in the government in the 80s and, and 90s, and he said that, you know, they explicitly sort of said, let's not let's not let this turn into Angola. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's not do what the Portuguese did and let's think about how how the handover is going to happen. And so I think even within the South African administration, there was some awareness of this and planning for that yeah. um, from the other side. Yeah.
2: And and I think a lot of it had to do with awareness of the need for particular skills, like skills for governing, skills to keep the mines running, skills to uh, get a new independent economy off it up on its feet.
0: Uh, and this, that's, that's really what, I mean, one of the interesting, a lot of times you have situations in post-colonial uh, dynamics where uh, the, the colonizer leaves, takes a lot of the, the knowledge of how to run the infrastructure with them. And so then the country, is unable to be economically competitive. But then the other thing is a lot of times you have these sort of extractive resources as the centerpiece of the economy. And because those are often controlled by the state, then who runs the state becomes hugely important. And you have different factions and regions and ethnic groups fighting with each other. And especially if you have something like a a centralized resource, say, for instance, a uranium mine or like diamonds or something like that, um, then that can become sort of the thing you fight the civil war over. That didn't happen in Namibia.
1: It's a good point. It didn't happen in South Africa either, although there was some discussion of nationalization at times. I think maybe because um, by the 90s, when Namibia was independent 94, when South Africa, um, you know, apartheid ended, a lot of the wind had gone out of the sails of kind of hardcore Marxism in, in the anti-colonial forces. And there was a strong pressure to sort of keep the economies ticking along. And there were, you know, these big businesses, which were Partly international, partly South African. If we're talking about De Beers, um, or in South Africa, Anglo American, the big mining companies. Um, but partly international, like uh, Rio Tinto, which which runs the Russing uranium mine in Namibia. There's just a recognition that they would work with the new um, the new regime. I think part of the distinction, though, that we haven't mentioned is that that separates Namibia and South Africa from much of the rest of the continent, is that these are settler colonies. Mm-hmm. So um, like America, like Australia, like the U.S., or like Canada and like Australia, you know, the, the colonists came and they settled down and they had families and they became embedded in the economy that they didn't in uh, most of the French colonies, for instance, outside of Algeria. Um, and that meant that you know, a lot of the people running the mines or even in the government offices just stayed where they were. And, and, you know, the, the top brass changed over, but the, uh, the people in the middle didn't. Um, and that's true in South Africa. It's true in Namibia. And that's very different from other parts of the continent.
0: The power, I mean, this is a, I've been reading lately. uh, so, So I've been reading this book, which has nominally has very little to do with this which is Timothy Snyder's Black Earth The Holocaust as History and Warning which is a really uplifting title but it's <laughs> it's all about basically the the Nazi crimes in the in in the east in particular in in, in Ukraine and U- in Poland and one of the things he talks about is that is how important the state is the 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 bureaucracy just civil servants and and the maintenance of these and as long as you have these then anyone who's a citizen of these countries can use the bureaucracy in order to s- sort of sustain their rights if you will and it it was where what Snyder argues is that although a lot of people are like, you know, the Holocaust happened because the state, you know, the German state perpetrated the Holocaust. But what he argues is that the worst of the crimes happened where the state had been destroyed first by the Soviets and then by the by the invading Nazis. So in in, in parts of the Soviet Union that the Nazis had taken over, where they just destroyed the state and there was no one to protect the civilians in Ukraine in particular, in Poland in particular, and it's, so it's like the 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 idea that the state endures through the transition. Seems really important to me, and it's the thing that I think distinguishes maybe uh, Namibia and South Africa from a lot of other uh, a lot of other places in in uh, in post colonial history. Yeah,
2: and in in the case of Namibia, there is the recognition both internally and externally uh, that transition was something that needed to happen, and that independence was coming. So, in a sense, even the people who were involved in the internal government, which uh, a lot of like Swapo fighters would. They would call those people collaborationists, Um, Mm -hmm. but I mean, even those people understood that some changes needed to happen and were thinking past by internal
1: governments. You mean like the sort of homeland Bantustan type governments? No, Um, or do you mean the South? Well, not
2: even not even just the Bantustan governments. Uh uh, Even at the central Vintuk
1: level, uh, Uh Vintuk is the capital of Namibia. Our
0: listeners No yeah. no Namibia, I just this is just a side note. Namibia, the other thing you'll notice if you look at the map of Namibia is that most of the lines are most of the borders are pretty much straight lines, and that's, pretty, that's a pretty usual designator, both internationally and within the United States, that not a ton of people live there and a lot of it might <coughs> be desert. Which which happens to be the case, um, and what did you say? Like twenty five percent of Namibia is some vast percentage of Namibia is is national park actually.
1: Well, is under a form of either, either national or private conservation. That includes big game farms, um, sort of tourism sites, and that includes community conservation units. Which Namibia has been kind of a pioneer of of that model. Um, yeah. I mean Namibia's geography is pretty central to understanding it.
0: It's named after a desert.
1: Yes, it's named after the Namib Desert, which is um which is a big sort of sand desert that runs along the southwestern coast, up into Angola actually.
0: Now you you you've actually been there and traveled extensively. Like I there's deserts and there's deserts. There's like shrubland <laughs> type deserts, like you know, like northern Arizona where it's like the right. of the Grand Canyon actually has like trees and stuff all over it like whenever i want maybe maybe they're just picking picking particularly selective shots of it but like whenever i see nature videos about the namib desert it's just sand like <laughs> just yeah. sand with the occasional rock in the middle like it's <laughs> being worn away great right, right
1: yeah there's big chunks of namibia that are um true sort of hyper arid desert that look like the sahara um there's the namib sand sea which is i think what you're talking about which you see a lot of um you know a lot of nature photography, a lot of um uh wildlife documentaries about its its weird and wonderful creatures. There's also the gravel plains, which are just what they sound like kind of endless flat um expanses that's the area where Mad Max was filmed um, in fact, locally they call it the moon landscape because it just looks like another planet it's the i think the second least densely populated country on earth after. Mongolia uh, after Mongolia. yeah, yeah, yeah it's,
0: it's the thirty fourth largest by area, but there's only about two million people in it, and a substantial number of them live. I mean, I'm kind of imagining something kind of like Libya here where like basically everyone just lives in a few cities and and mostly near the, near the coast. but like is it, it, it are, are people diffuse? is it st- I mean it's much more complicated than it's just a desert. there's there's arable oh, land definitely. there's yeah you know, mm-hmm.
1: oh yeah, no, no, there are areas that have much, well, not high rainfall, but yeah, but, but relatively much higher more.
2: compared to the, the sand sea of the Namib.
1: And I mean, a lot of it is uh, ranching and raising of cattle is still a big part of uh, the economy there. You do find in the south of the country, it's very much, there's a couple of big towns, Vintook, the capital in the central highlands, a couple of coastal towns, um, Swakopmund and Walfish Bay. Um, those have high concentrations. And then you have a large part in the north, where the Germans never really got—that's um, just quite densely populated. It's still agricultural, but it's it's dense uh, communal agriculture and some pretty big and growing urban, urban areas. areas. Mm.
0: Yeah. Now, when when you when you th- when, a lot of Namibia's economy comes from diamonds and uranium, and Mark, you study the uranium mining in particular. When I hear this, I'm I'm thinking like. Okay, there's two natural resources, one of which is diffused and one of which is concentrated in specific, you know, mines and areas that can be controlled. Uh, this sounds like a combination between like Angola and Niger. This sounds like a disaster. <laughs> uh, what have been your? I mean, you, you study how, how you know how the mining happens, how permits happen, what its effect is on the economy. What are, what do you what do you find? Sum up your research in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Years and years of research.
1: I mean, it's an interesting way to put it. There is um, Uranium's a funny mineral because it it has attached (laughs) to it all of these um, extra concerns about radiation, about nuclear weapons. It's much more regulated at an international level from that perspective. Um, And, uh, you know, you think about there's a lot of talk about the politics that certain resources make possible, that coal makes possible, that oil makes possible. Uh, and uranium has, I think a different, a very different dynamic to it. Um,
0: no, nobody ever gave Naomi Campbell like a, like some, some conflict uranium. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, but there's, hmm.
1: In both cases, it's been pretty tightly controlled and the state gets pretty involved. So the diamond industry uh, you know, first under the Germans, and then later under a kind of De Beers um, Southwest African joint venture. Um, if I've got that, I have to consult the historian here. But oh,
2: between- uh, Consolidated Diamond Mines.
1: It was it was under tight state control, and you had these big sort of areas of the country that were literally off limits to anybody who wanted to come in just big swathes of desert that were I've read somewhere that
0: there's like deserts regions where they're, they're literally just like diamonds on the ground and you can just like pick them up
1: yes that was in the first couple years of of German diamond mining there that's pretty much they just had lines of people walking across the desert just picking diamonds up out of uh, out of the sand and then it moved into um, slightly more conventional mining using the same in South Africa there was this use of black labor from Uh, from more populated parts of the country and people would come in and be really tightly controlled. And and it's all part of the development of apartheid. Um, Lately, diamond mining has moved mostly offshore, uh, which is environmentally pretty uh, pretty
0: bad. But um, I don't know how I would... Offshore as in to other countries or offshore as in, like, into the ocean? Into Into the the ocean, ocean.
1: yes. They sort of have these... these... I
0: have never heard of this. This sounds (laughs) fascinating slash alarming. Yeah, they'll
1: have these sort of boats with basically big vacuum tubes attached to them, and divers take them down, and they just suck up a couple meters of seafloor and then uh, filter diamonds out of it and then, you know, spew the rest of the stuff out, which, as you can imagine, is is environmentally a, a pretty, um, pretty nasty game. And like, um, like other forms of mining, like other forms of industry anywhere, it's increasingly mechanized, increasingly it's not a sort of viable um, source of mass employment. Um, and you start to see a lot of the problems that come along with resource extraction where uh, the, the fruits of, of that are going to a limited number of people um, many of them outside of the country and then to a small core of people inside the country. And um, maybe it's yeah. been, we've been plugging it as a sort of positive example, but it, you know it's been criticized a lot for not using its mineral wealth the way Botswana, for instance, has, where there's a concerted effort to invest it in a kind of sustainable way in uh, in development.
0: It always fascinates me how a country, how enlightened or unenlightened, or, or a, a country is when it comes to using its its mineral resources and, and and the control over that and where the money goes. Like Botswana has diamonds and is has generally been lauded for uh, uh, using them really well. Namibia has been kind of lauded for this and then angola also has diamonds and it's been a complete disaster yeah so (laughs) right is the is the difference just like portuguese colonization Uh. was terrible or or is you know or you know the cold war sucked and it just happened that that Hmm. you know the diamonds happened to be located in in Savimbi's region, and the, the oil happened to be located in Los no Angeles region <laughs> or or is it or is it more complicated than that, or is it really is it does it come down to individuals making enlightened decisions, or are there structural reasons that are that, that you find are more uh, or is it some combination thereof?
2: I would say it's a combination thereof, but I mean, in terms of some of the big mining companies, and I mean not not even just the diamond company, like CDM. Consolidated diamond mines, but also Rossing Uranium, um, uh, Tsumeb Corporation, which mined copper, uh, lead, zinc, and a variety of other minerals um, in sort of central central to northern Namibia. During that period, when um, it was clear that independence was coming at some point, uh, there was a lot of pressure on these companies to i guess show some sort of corporate responsibility and it and it came faster in some of the companies in some of the companies than in others uh but there was sort of a precedent of some semblance of contributing to society in the form of training programs and things like that
1: yeah i do think i know historians are pretty wary of counterfactuals but like if uh if the all the diamonds had been up in in the north in ovambo country i think then then maybe you would have seen as opposed to being in, in the south in land that had been under tight colonial control ever since the Germans yes then then maybe the dynamics of that struggle would have been different and and maybe more similar to to Angola um but as it is you know the minerals that were closer to the heart of the struggle and the heart of the conflict were things that could be controlled i think more easily it couldn't be mined artisanally in the way that you know, diamonds can be sometimes, or like coltan in in the Democratic Republic of, of Congo.
0: Yeah, where it's a, it's like you can you, actually both both like diamonds in Sierra Leone. You get there's this whole question of you know diffuse resources versus consolidated re- resources. But the idea that that you can literally just sort of like scoop down and you know as a small band of people without a lot of tools. Um, get some, some of this resource, send it to a neighboring country's dictator who then exports it, gives you a share of the profits, and then finances your war against the state, it has proved just absolutely ruinous. And that's not exactly how, it, how it's worked in, um, in Namibia.
1: Yeah, because I think to keep those mines, the big mines for lead, copper, uranium going, required a level of organization that wouldn't have been possible for a guerrilla movement if they didn't control the territory, right? Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: And also by the time... Um, yeah, I mean, by the time the Liberation War really started to ramp up, like Sumeb was a pretty old mine at that point and it's a wasting resource. So uh, the ore that they were trying to get was deeper down and harder to get at. So it, A, a it's wasting not...
0: resource for the, us non-experts in, in <laughs> mining is...
2: I mean, basically, I just mean that uh, as a mine gets older, it gets more difficult to mine.
1: Yeah, and less economical.
2: Yeah, yeah. It costs Um, more. It becomes more uh, skills intensive, which was another reason why it became increasingly important for for training and multiracial training to
1: uh, develop. Yeah, I mean, this comes up to an area that some historians and anthropologists and geographers and others have been talking about, which is how important it is to kind of think carefully about the specific qualities of different resources and and different industries associated with them, rather than talking broadly about, you know, the pathologies of resource rich countries to think about those those kind of specific uh, characteristics.
0: Um, it's like dutch disease you're doomed yeah right <laughs> no <laughs> only if it's certain resources yeah. you know yeah. And, yeah
1: and i mean certainly oil has certainly does seem to have some pathologies pretty closely associated with it
0: mm-hmm. yeah and, and angola had oil and that that's that's been fairly ruinous yeah. um but uh but maybe it doesn't so uh yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> it, that may have been a
1: very good thing they were really hoping for a an oil boom, but it hasn't, it hasn't <laughs> cropped up so
0: far. So you've both been researching, uh, your respective s- spheres of research in Namibia for many years now. Um, I guess like from the time that you imagined yourselves back to when you started, like what, what have you learned that's like most surprised you? What's, what's been the most striking thing for me? And this is
1: embarrassing. Um, I knew that race was important. Obviously, Namibia is a, a post apartheid country. Um, but I, I sort of thought as I developed this uh, cultural anthropology project about bureaucracy, technocracy, kind of the management of the environment, um, I thought I would be much more focused on sort of people's beliefs about the environment or people's beliefs about science or government, and that race would be a kind of background issue. But it actually has been much, much more in the foreground uh, than I thought. Um, than I thought it would be, and that's been, I think, the single biggest change from from before I went to the field to now. So really, still very live issues um, about who gets the kind of management level jobs. You know, is it foreigners?
0: Is it Namibians?
1: Is it white Namibians? Is it black Namibians?
0: Um, I mean, there's still there's still like German families that are that are landholders from like. Dating back generations to the colonial era as as I understand it absolutely,
1: right. yes, there's um I mean it's a small number, maybe forty thousand Germans and many more Afrikaans speaking. Uh, white Namibians. But
0: there's only 2.1 million Namibians.
1: So. Yes. yeah, So um,
2: it's a sizable proportion. Mm-hmm. And they But own, not huge.
0: They own a lot of the agricultural land. And they... I think I read that during, during the, the apartheid era, it was something like 0.2% of the population controlled 76% of the arable land or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, and Namibia, I mean, I sometimes tell people that there are a few things that make Namibia a very interesting country. One of them is is this kind of exceptional you know it it functions quite well people will sometimes uh, say oh it's africa for beginners which is a pretty problematic thing to say yeah (laughs) yes it's it's, it's, africa light really yeah people, people will say that um you know it's sort of expats who have this kind of macho game of you know who's been to the real Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, this is
0: me putting my head
1: in my hands, which <laughs> yeah, you can't it's, see yeah. on, uh, it's, it's on a podcast. Bad. But, <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things is is just how uh, sparsely populated it is. And one of them is it's, it's, it routinely ranks in the kind of top five for income or wealth inequality in the mm-hmm. world. So it's relatively wealthy for Africa. Uh, in fact, they, a lot of... Uh, donors have cut off their funding because it's too rich. It's a kind of it's listed as a medium-income country, but the inequality is is pretty dramatic. Uh, and that that's one of these things, as in South Africa, where um, it's a little less racialized. You have a growing black elite who are managing to capture a lot of of capital, but um, it's still highly racialized, and you still see that in who's highly educated, who's getting the professional jobs.
0: Um, and and uh, Steph, what, what, what has been the, the thing that you've most uh, walked away from as, as sort of the thing that struck you that you didn't expect going into your research?
2: Well, I've learned so many things. Um, and it's interesting for me because my interest in Namibia started with my Peace Corps service. And I was in the Peace Corps in the part of Namibia that juts out into uh, South Central Africa, uh, the Caprivi region, now the Zambezi region. and. I mean, I think maybe the most striking thing, I don't know, I guess part of it is just the diversity of Namibia. Um, but another part of it that kind of pertains to the inequality um, was that Caprivi just felt like worlds, worlds away from, from the capital. And I remember when I was a volunteer, we had this, we had this program, um, it was called Camp Glow, uh, and Glow stood for Guys and Girls Leading Our World. I was a teacher, so I had to uh, pick the, some of my. They're the difficult
0: to pronounce. Double G. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, originally it was girls leading our world, but okay. but later the program was open to. Got know, it. <laughs> guys and girls. Yeah.
0: But yes. <laughs> it's it's really
2: just one G, but yeah. But anyway, so I I had to select some students to bring to the Capitol to see like Parliament Gardens and some of the government buildings, and. Um, I I just remember that, I mean, some of my students had never left the region, and they had never been to a big city because there's only one town in Caprivi uh, region and it's not very big. Uh, but I I just didn't expect there to be like such culture shock, like when I when I left my village and and came to Vintuk, um, so. Yeah, I guess maybe the things that most struck me were a combination of like just how much race means um, and how much it perme- permeates uh, various sectors of, of daily life in Namibia. Uh, and also, um, I don't know, I guess the sort of the primacy of local communities and um, regional identities over, uh, sometimes a feeling of Namibianness, although that that is also important, and people do feel like Namibians.
0: Um, so I guess it uh, we we should we should wrap up. But uh, one of the things that that really strikes me about this is I don't know, like uh, in in my political science studies, I find that a lot of people do these sort of political comparisons where it's like, well, in in these 35 countries, there was oil. And in 67% of the cases, this led to this political outcome. This is kind of, this conversation is kind of like a, pretty hard strike against that mindset because he, each country has is, is just so sweet generous and has such a, a unique set of circumstances and it's, it's history. And when it, you know, if it was a colony, when it was decolonized and who it was decolonized from and what kind of resources it had and what kind of relations there were between different groups and, and what kind of individuals made, what kind of individual decisions at specific points. It's like, if you have this, you know, and, and, uh, so I guess that the the takeaway here is basically sort of uh study each country individually and take it for what it is, not just like as an as as one point on a uh you know, a scatter graph, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah.
1: I mean you are I'm an anthropologist, Steph, you're a historian. I'm a historian. And these are two deeply particularist disciplines. I mean that's mm-hmm. sort of our I think our strength and our weakness is that we always just want to say, no, 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 it's complicated. There's an exception. Yes. (laughs) There's all these specific issues that you need to take into account. But uh, I honestly, I think it's a really important um, corrective sometimes to people who think that they've understood how things work everywhere. Um, I always think of a, a great anthropologist named Clifford Geertz who... Uh, he was commenting on the debate between, and this is probably too particular, but the debate between um, uh, relativism and universalism is kind of anthropologists are relativists. Everything is relative to the cultural context versus the idea that there's some universal way to understand human behavior. And he said, well, I'm not a complete relativist because the philosophers get really angry at you if you do that. <laughs> uh, what I am... But I'm not. A, I'm certainly not a universalist. I'm an anti-anti relativist. I think <laughs> I, I'm deeply suspicious of people who who think that they've got a handle on how things work everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always think of it as as a kind of a knowing that you never know enough, really, and and trying to put the brakes on on yourself if you think that you have got a general model for how everywhere is going to work. And I think that's what history and anthropology can, can really bring to the table. Mm-hmm.
0: And on that, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Mark, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, well,
1: thank you no for problem. having us. Thanks for having us. Uh,
0: we will, we will plug your respective books slash research whenever you, you know, when you, when you guys make it big, you know, I will, <laughs> I will be there. We'll, you, you know, Well, thank you. Yeah, much appreciated. (laughs) As for the podcast itself, you can find the podcast online at joegeni.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. Or you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back real soon with another podcast. Until then, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.